I, I like to share that up high on the ice sheet, it's, it feels like you might as well be on the moon. What can glaciers and ice in Greenland tell us about climate change? Quite a lot, actually. Today I speak with Professor Jason Box. He's an internationally renowned professor of glaciology that has been to more than 30 expeditions in Greenland to study climate change and to monitor the development of the ice. Uh, you can't see climate change in Greenland by going one time. You have to go twice. And then you can, you can be like, hang on, the, the ice was over here five years ago. Now it's like, you know, way over there. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today I speak with Professor Jason Box. Jason is an American, but he's been living in Denmark for the past 10 years. He's an internationally renowned professor of glaciology and an ice climatologist at GEOS, the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland. He's been co-author of the latest three assessment reports from the IPCC and co-wrote the decisive UN report Climate Change 2007, for which the team was co-awarded the Nobel Prize the same year. He's also participated in more than 30 expeditions to Greenland to study climate change and monitor the development of ice. In 2019, Jason Box entered the very top of researchers on the list highly cited researchers. This year, Professor Box and two of his colleagues are making headlines at Copenhagen Docks, where the movie Into the Ice opened the festival. The film shines light on the work Jason Box and his colleagues are doing in the Arctic, exploring ice caves and taking samples with the purpose of assessing what climate change is doing to one of our most vulnerable natural environments. Jason, welcome to my podcast. You've been on more than 30 expeditions to Greenland investigating the inland ice, listening to it. What what does the ice tell you? We have been setting out recorders, these masts that we drill into the ice or tripods, and we put on them many meteorological sensors and other instruments. And they give us the detailed story of what's really happening at the surface because you can look down from space from satellite that's an excellent perspective but you don't ever know for sure what's happening until you get this ground truth information so by sending out these recordings we listen to the data look at the data plot the data and we learn nature reveals its secrets We have to simply observe it. And because the Arctic climate change is happening strongly, it's warming more than three times 
the rate of the globe, we actually have a strong signal that we can measure. I'm quite envious that you've been to Greenland more than 30 times. Uh, it's a fantastic country. Uh, can you maybe take us through what, what, what an expedition entails? What is it that you actually do when you, when you get to the Inland Ice? Yeah, it's a lot of planning. It's kind of like cooking a, a, a great meal. Um, most of the work is preparations or yeah. stir fry is, a, I think, an even better analogy. You're making <laughs> stir fry a meal. You're chopping all of this, the food getting all ready, and then it's it comes time to cook the meal. And so it's, there's a lot of logistics, and um, I think it's a pretty satisfying um, process uh, because it's it's about actually doing things, you know, making things happen. Yeah. And then when we're there, uh, I, I like to share that uh, up high on the ice sheet, it's it's might as well be like on the moon. Uh, you, you might as well, it feels like you might as well be on the moon. How, how do you get there? How do you actually get there? Well, um, we've been um, flying with uh, ski equipped airplanes, like fixed wings and landing on the skis uh, sure. on the upper part, the, the part I call the flat white yeah. part. Uh, lower down, we use helicopters. And when possible, we even use dog sleds because we want to make our science as green as possible and, and get more engagement with Greenland society. So using dog sled is a super cool way to do it. Can you maybe explain to us why it is that you literally have to go into the ice? It's necessary to have a look what's happening really at the surface. And that's where we are confronted by the complexity of nature, the infinite fidelity of nature because when you're looking from a model or even a satellite you're getting a facsimile of reality you're getting a low fidelity view so it's really handy to just go there and observe and use your own senses because like the human brain is so much more powerful than a computer really Uh, by connecting the dots, then your brain will tell you what's happening. Uh, just the sights, the sounds, and you know this kind of information that you don't get from a satellite or a. So even in a world of satellites and artificial intelligence and computer models, we need brave people like you, actually going there into the ice with your own eyes to tell us what's actually going on. So what, what exactly, which kind of information is it that you can then de deduct from your work that we wouldn't have been able to, to just get a computer to tell us? So I'm a climatologist that is applying meteorology and atmospheric science to the glaciology questions. And that gives me the perspective of... Um, studying the the temperatures the the wind speeds the, how much sunlight the surface is absorbing the secrets of of what's really happening recently last august there was a, a record setting rainfall that went across the highest points of the greenland ice sheet the first time rainfall was witnessed at this american camp at the highest point at 3250 meters really high and dry should be um, but a big heat wave hit the ice sheet um, an atmospheric river that term is coming more into focus because 
atmospheric rivers can deliver a tremendous amount of moisture and heat to places like that. Maybe you should just explain that term, atmospheric river. Yeah. For, for a layman in, like in me. In California, the atmospheric river is called the Pineapple Express, and it delivers moisture across the Pacific into the mountains of California and causes tremendous uh, rainfall. So it's a it's a it's an intense flow of heat and moisture in the atmosphere in the shape of a river. And those are increasingly running into Greenland because there's more energy in the atmosphere, there's more humidity, and that's globally. And, and so when these uh, atmospheric waves hit places like Greenland or really anywhere, they can dump a lot of moisture. And what we learned from having set up a bunch of climate recorders uh, from the National Survey of Denmark, uh, GEUS, um, the survey organization that I work with, we had just installed a bunch of equipment uh, right before it started raining. So we ended up with a really detailed view of what was happening. And this atmospheric river delivered not only a lot of moisture, but it was really the heat. And what we learned from the measurements, it was more about the heat delivery than the, the amount of rain wasn't that high, but the heat, it darkened the snow because the crystals that formed snow, they they had sharp edges and the the heat, it, it melts the edges of the crystals and makes them uh, rounded. And that means the, the, the snow is absorbing more sunlight. And so while there was quite a lot of melting during the atmospheric river, when that went away and the clear sky conditions came out, we could measure that the surface was absorbing and melting for another six, seven days. And this was an excellent example of what we call an albedo feedback, an amplifying mechanism that was kicked off by the heat from the atmospheric river. And then the impact was sustained over several days after the weather event had, had appeared to end. It wasn't raining anymore, but the surface was absorbing a lot more sunlight and so and this was late in the melt season so the melt season gets extended uh, we see melt happening earlier in the season so the the whole seasonality the the intensity of melting we, we're getting really uh, precise uh, credible numbers about that yeah so the, the albedo effect that you mentioned maybe we should just elaborate a little bit on that if i understand it correctly it's that it 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 refers to the phenomenon that when when the energy in the form of sunlight hits ice or snow or water or ground, if it hits something that's light, ice or snow, it's reflect most of the energy is reflected back. Is it around eighty percent or something into the atmosphere? Whereas if it hits ground or water, it's it's the opposite. It's eighty percent that's then absorbed. So if I understand you correctly, what's happening here is that when then the snow that's should be reflecting becomes darker it absorbs more then it becomes warmer and then we have a negative feedback is that the way i am to understand it yes that's correct and albedo is just a greek word for whiteness like albino uh, um, albedo whiteness and i'm starting to talk more about the darkness of the snow rather than the the brightness uh, because that that more focuses what's happening, the, the heat, um, darkening snow, or lower down on the ice sheet, 
there is a thin snow cover that when that is gone, that's a seasonal snow cover. Then you have a dark ice, bare ice, and this glacier ice, it has a lot of biological impurities. You get a, a huge increase in sunlight. And so the, the biggest melt impact per area was down low. But up high, because the ice sheet gets really flat up at the upper elevations, this rain and heat wave event, it allowed it darkened this much larger area of the ice sheet high up. And then it absorbed quite a lot more energy and, and just kept the melt going. And it wasn't even melting before that. Uh, so this was a dramatic event and an excellent example of an extreme event that that thanks to this network of measurements that we have installed, we we can walk away with that. And, and I'm now just publishing, it's coming out in the next few days, uh, an article with a press release so that this information gets out to the public. Well, this is very, very important work that you do because uh, you can see climate change uh, many places on the planet, obviously, but I I sometimes like to use the phrase that some places on the planet is like the canary in the mine, uh, you know. Uh, and I guess you could say that about the Arctic and you could say that about Greenland. Um, so the conclusion of all of this science is, I guess it's fair to say, pretty disturbing. Can, can you maybe uh, elaborate a little bit on, on that for us? Making sea level projections, prognoses for the future. It's risky business and it's uncertain business. So we have to plan with uh, what we call deep uncertainty and and kind of prepare for the worst, hope for the best. You know, we can hope all day long, but we have to be uh, realistic about risk. In the insurance fields, uh, they do risk, you know, as their core business, then they can I think look at a problem like this very uh, honestly. We face catastrophic risk. Eventually, the sea rise from accelerating loss of land ice, Greenland, Antarctica, ice caps elsewhere, that will force its way on the agenda increasingly in the future. But it's it's not like today that sea rise is a problem in your face today. No, it'll it'll it, but it's coming. You know, and it's it, it it's gaining momentum, so it's going to be kind of unavoidable, really. Um, but we can begin to put on the brakes, uh, and that would be helpful because now you're altering the initial conditions. If we can do something now, it actually has a big impact later, and and so so we are not powerless, even though we we're uh, we're we're in we're in deep trouble. Um, but we we have some time to react at least to the sea rise issue uh, as to the other more immediate issues uh, I guess you probably know better than I you know our ability to react and and mitigate the various um, challenges that we face you you mentioned uh, how that the insurance companies they they measure risk right and I I've often thought that if you look at how much most people and companies are willing to spend on having an insurance on their 
house not burning down, for instance, and you ask them, so how how big of a risk do you think there is that your house will burn down? They'll probably be quite minute, right? Still, they're willing to pay quite a large amount every year to insure themselves in case that happens. So that's a bit of a paradox because if you ask most people, they'll say there's a pretty big likelihood. It's actually for certain that if we don't do anything, climate change will lead to catastrophic events. And we're not right now as a global community investing anything equal to what we're investing in other sorts of insurances in our in our lives. It, it doesn't, it's a paradox for me. Right, because I think that we're required to have fire insurance when we buy a house. Yeah, we are, even, even by law. And so <laughs> yeah. uh, by that same logic, we should be required to mitigate the ri- high risks, uh, the existential risks, the catastrophic risks that we face and the science is clear enough that that this is coming at us. So the policy um, should, like the fire insurance, it should reflect that risk. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Um, now, you, you mentioned all the uncertainties. Um, but I think probably it's, it's useful to, to share with our listeners that even though there are a lot of uncertainties, no scientist that I know at least disagree with the fact that it's the temperature increasing faster than we thought it would the, it, it, it's definitely going much faster than 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 what a natural variation might lead to and that this will be extremely serious if we don't uh, don't do anything and one of the reasons why we can say this with with uh, some certainty is that some of your colleagues have also uh, made drillings into the ice so that they can measure uh, the connection between CO2 and temperatures several hundred thousand years uh, in in the past, right? Can you maybe share with us some knowledge on that? The past measurements of uh, greenhouse gases um, and ocean sediment records uh, similarly uh, demonstrate that when CO2 is high, sea level is high, temperature is high, um, that those are um, not really disputed. Those the the past. Um, what's different today, however, is what's driving the system. There is no analog really in in the the past um, half million years of, of ice core records, uh, because the the ch- the climate changes recorded in ice cores they were driven by orbital um, wobblings of of our planet and that's natural and it has a harmonic cycle so uh, ice ages come and go and and there's a cycle to it then sprinkle in some volcanic eruptions they have a cooling effect on climate surprisingly despite all of that fire because they they put uh, a a a cloud of of uh, aerosols that shades the surface that that cools the surface then there's sometimes there are asteroids hitting or the the planet and that has a, a climate effect but but what's different today is uh, humans have been digging up and burning fossil fuels to power this amazing civilization that we have uh, but accumulating kind of a, a, a climate debt because that cost has been externalized we've we haven't paid for the cost of loading the atmosphere with co2 uh, yet the, the the bill has been accumulating. So the the, the future under a, a human elevated greenhouse world is is different. Um, it's not controlled by the orbital changes, uh, which 
um, change climate over a much slower time scale. We know by measurements that the rate of climate uh, change is many thousands of times faster than ever before recorded in, in ice cores and so on. Um, so it, it's happening fast in geological times and fast enough that if you revisit places that have ice on that, that you notice that after a few years, uh, you, you can't see climate change in Greenland by going one time. You have to go twice. And about five years in between, then you're going to notice some changes like, and that is one of the uses of the ice. It, uh, it, it just reacts. And then you can, you can be like, hang on, the, the ice was over here five years ago. Now it's like, you know, way over there. Um, and uh, that's part of the use of, of um, the ice as, as telling us what's happening. It's... Um... It's a very important job that that you have, and and thank you so much for for doing it. Uh, also, because it's also a dangerous job, actually. Um, well, your 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 mentor, I guess it's fair to say, Conrad Steffen, uh, he actually died doing doing his his job. Um, talk to us a little bit about about that. I mean, uh, we're grateful that you that you do this, but but how how do you tell your family that? this is necessary for me to go away and do this dangerous job? Well, after the loss of Conrad Steffen, the tragic loss, um, we have escalated our safety measures and, and that's how we are hedging risk. So we are managing risk in, 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 we're taking more attention to that now. So I can say with confidence to my family, um, you know, that we are taking even stronger, um, risk management measures, uh, but we can't eliminate risk totally. Um, but making these measurements, it's a worthwhile, it's a meaningful risk because it's important information for society. And it, and it's, and I, I want to actually thank society for supporting this work, for trusting scientists to go out there and get uh, these measurements so that we can check the models and the satellites and that we can, Uh, be smart about what's happening. Um, so I think it's a it's a worthwhile risk to take. Um, uh, Conrad Stefan he he died doing what he what he was passionate about, and that's that's more than than I think a lot of us can say at the end of our time. So so I I'm not um, I think I. I find a way to spin this in, in a, actually quite a, a positive way that it, it even draws more attention to this important issue that we are all part of and that uh, everyone is supporting what we're doing. So this is a team effort in, that you know, includes us all. Jason, I, I saw somewhere that you said that you consider yourself, probably said it with a smile, a climate refugee. Yes, uh, And I even sometimes say I'm a political refugee uh, from from the U.S. <laughs> so you moved to Denmark. Um, yeah, if you would believe yeah. it, I wasn't satisfied with the environmental policy of Barack Obama. So you can you can imagine what what I feel about Trump Trump's environmental <laughs> policy. We we were putting a lot of pressure on yes, Obama yes. to try to stop building pipelines that would lock in uh, for decades uh, the use of fossil energy. Mm. And so that was about the time I left. Um, The U.S. and and uh, 
um, coming to Denmark, um, you know, I'd say as a political refugee was was good because Denmark has a good social model, um, more equity. Um, but on the climate refugee, uh, Scandinavia is a, a safer place to be because the temperatures rarely get above 25 Celsius. Uh, you know, of course, we're quite happy in the summertime when we get those wa warm temperatures yeah, for yeah, like yeah. the two weeks that it happens. Uh, yeah. if, if we're lucky, um, if we're lucky. We it's don't weeks, face yeah. the 40 degrees temperatures um, or like what India is getting no. hit with right now. That is uh, unlivable, basically. So I, I wanted my child to grow up in yeah. a place where um, the climate extremes, hopefully, and, and probably my, my expert assessment was is that you know Denmark is a much safer place to live uh, in terms of uh, climate extremes so you, you don't really well I, I I don't I wouldn't say never on really anything we have to expect the unexpected um, and if you remember the summer of 18 how dry that was in, in Denmark and uh, again people weren't really complaining because it was like you know summer or beach weather every day but it started to threaten the the food system and the water system and that's the kind of impacts that are much more common look look at southern europe i mean spain and and southern france italy their their agricultural system is has is getting hammered they're having to irrigate heavily uh, even in central europe um, irrigation and so water uh, demands are are starting to be a, a, I mean Southern Europe it's it's kind of getting fried. Yeah, and you look in, at in Belgium and, and Northern uh, Southern Germany last summer was hit by by floods that were clearly also related to climate change that caused terrible damage. Uh, so I mean this will hit the entire planet. Obviously some countries are, are more fortunate than others in that sense, and it's actually. It's it's quite unfair that it's often the richest countries, like for instance the Scandinavian ones. Also, us that's been part of creating this problem because we've been industrialized for 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 many years and has burned fossil fuels for for many years. I think personally that that gives us uh, an obligation to to do more to mitigate, but also to do more uh, with regards to to supporting the science and 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 the 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 very important work that that you and your colleagues do Jason so thank you so much for for the hard work that you're doing the important work that you're doing i'll be looking forward to to reading your your article that'll come out in a few days and uh, thank you for this talk also yeah it's really good to meet you and it's, it's important to get the science and the policy out into the public it is Thank you, Jason. Okay. Good luck. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.